you found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true Tried in the fire, still good in this hour. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm the host of this study, Donnie King. This is Monday, September the 26th, episode number 83, John's description of Christ, Revelation chapter 1, verses 11 through 18. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, we tapped into what we believe is becoming a huge problem within our Pentecostal and holiness churches. Many people assume that if you teach or preach about topics such as predestination, you must be Calvinist or reform. Others think because you lift Christ up, you must be oneness. There are some who feel that if you believe in supernatural healings and such, you must be charismatic. I know this might be a bold statement, but these are all wrong doctrinal assumptions. We took time and explained why we believe this, and we think you will agree by the time you finish the study. In today's episode, we go over John's description that he gave of Jesus Christ. We are very familiar with some of the terms John uses, but we see many things that we feel need to be pointed out. John says Jesus has hair white as wool, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished brass, a garment to the foot, and a golden girdle. What does all this mean? What does it mean when John says that Jesus has seven stars in his hands? Who are the seven angels over the churches? We look at all of this and much more. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of this podcast, Brother Donnie King. Thank you for tuning in with us today. We're excited about this lesson. We're going to look into a lot of different things right here in just these few verses we're going to get through today, and we're ready to get started. You ready for it? We're ready to go. All right, let's take off. All right. Well, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. And I'll have to admit to you, when I first looked at Revelation chapter 1, I thought, you know, this will probably be one, maybe one and a half episodes in chapter 1, and then we'll jump quickly on into chapter 2. But here we are fixing to finish our third episode just in chapter 1. There is a lot of stuff here, and we're just kind of glossing over some of the things, just making mention of it to where we can get to the other stuff so we could hit on other things that hasn't been hit on very often in our churches. I know that we've already gone all over the first 11 verses, but I'm going to look at the last part of verse 11 once again. So I'm going to read verses 11 through 20, and then I'm going to come back and talk about each verse, verse by verse. Saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. 
His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Now, we've spoken of how Jesus said that he is the first and the last, but there's much, much more here than meets the eye. For one, Jesus commands John to write everything he sees in a book. He said, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book. This is more proof that this was a vision, a revelation, and a prophecy. It wasn't just something that John concocted on his own. John is not only supposed to write these things in a book, but he is also to deliver this book to the seven specific churches found in Asia Minor. We read the names of the seven churches at the end of this verse. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. There are some things about each of these churches that we will see are very relevant to our day right now. While some of these things were kind of just only relevant for them back in those days, but we can see some principles that we can glean from that, and all of it is very helpful to us right now. In verse 12, I find it interesting that John turns to see the one talking with him. And when he turns to see who is talking with him, he saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, this sounds like something kind of odd, and it makes me wonder what John thought when he turned and he saw seven golden candlesticks. As a matter of fact, I would figure that his mind went back to Zechariah chapter 4, where we find a reference to something very similar as well. The difference was here in Revelation, there was one standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, like unto the Son of Man, according to verse 13. Now, there's a lot of information right there that I just said. There's one in the midst. We read about one who, if we gather together in the name of Jesus, that there would be one who would be in our midst, and it's Jesus, of course. And the seven golden candlesticks from Zechariah 4 also represent the seven spirits of God, which if Jesus is in our midst, the Spirit of God will also be with us as well. And this one standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, the Bible says, was likened to the Son of Man. Now, I hope you notice that Son is capitalized here. We realize that John knew Jesus as the Son of Man, as the Gospels record many, many times, and John is simply revealing the identity of the one standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This is obvious to me because when John was writing his Gospel account, he pulled from the prophet Ezekiel very often, and Ezekiel was known for using that phrase, Son of Man. He was called the Son of Man in that book, and he also spoke of the Son of Man very frequently. As a matter of fact, this phrase is used 81 times in the New Testament, and most of the time it is used, it is used by Jesus Christ himself in describing himself. (laughs) Now, something that we need to keep in the back of our mind is that these seven golden candlesticks represent the seven churches. There's argument over what 
is meant by the seven churches of Asia. Why is it only these seven? Why is it these seven specifically? But The number seven also means perfection and completion. And so it could be that these seven specific churches were the main churches in that area. And it means that this letter is to all of the churches that was in the vicinity of these churches. So in other words, this would not just be a revelation to seven specific churches and the rest would be left out. This is a revelation for all people in all churches. These seven golden candlesticks represent these seven churches right here. And these were the lights which God had given to Asia Minor to show them the truth. Do you know what the truth is? Who was in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks? Well, it was Jesus Christ. And he was the one likened to the Son of Man, John says, but we know that's Jesus. He was standing in the midst of seven lights. So in other words, there's light all around him. So we should understand right here that the light shines upon Jesus Christ and it reveals him. Light is a revealer. Darkness is something that hides something from others. But here light is one that reveals things to people. And here we have Jesus standing in the midst of these lamps, in the midst of these seven golden candlesticks. And if they had light in them, they were illuminating Jesus Christ. This is exactly what God was doing to John. He was illuminating and giving the revelation of Jesus Christ to John right here. Jesus is the son of man who is walking among the seven golden candlesticks. So if you were to literally interpret this, this means that Jesus is walking in the midst of the churches also. Just as God walked in the midst of the garden and in the midst of Adam and Eve while in the garden of Eden, Jesus walks in the midst of the churches today. This tells me something right here. The Lord still desires to have fellowship with mankind. He doesn't have to come. He wants to come and be among his people. John goes on in verse 13 with his description of this son of man, and he said he's clothed with a garment down to the foot. First off, I want to note that he was clothed. Jesus didn't appear unto John in a form that he would say, well, he was naked or he didn't have much clothing on. He said he was clothed. And he was clothed with a garment, and this garment went all the way down to his feet. Then he said he was girt about the paps with a golden girdle. All of this is very, very interesting, but yet even more so, it's very telling as well. Many people read this, and they miss the main point concerning this description that John gives of Jesus. I want to point out a couple of things just very quickly. The high priest was the one who was known to wear a robe down to his feet. The rest of them would wear robes that was between the knee and between the ankle. But the high priest, his garment would always be to his feet. Even more explicit is the mention of a golden girdle. And I want you to notice all priests wore a girdle about them, but only the high priest would wear a golden girdle or a sash, if you will. All the rest of them would wear scarlet and blue and purple. But this one, the high priest would wear the golden girdle. Both things that John told us about that Jesus was wearing are very distinct to the priesthood and not only the priesthood, but to the high priest alone. So now we can put a couple of more things with our description of Jesus and Jesus is our high priest and he's walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, does that put anything in your mind? 
think back to the tabernacle. The tabernacle had the candlestick within it, and there was a high priest that would minister in it. So we're seeing Jesus walking among the churches who are the seven golden candlesticks, and we find Jesus as the high priest ministering in his temple, and he's walking in the midst of his people. This is a reference to Jesus being our high priest that is to dwell within our tabernacle. John goes on in verse 14, and he said his head and his hairs were white like wool. Then he goes a step further, and he says they were white as snow. There are two other verses that also link the color white with wool and with snow, and both of them are also very telling as well. One of them is Isaiah 1 and 18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Going to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. I want to point out just a couple of things real quickly right here. We know that it's the Lord who wants us to come reason with him, and he said he would make our sins and our defilements white as snow and make them as wool. So by the mention of this, it links that together in our mind for us, and we are to put two and two together and realize this is the one Isaiah was speaking of who wanted to do away with our sins. We are to also understand when Daniel speaks of this, he's speaking of the Ancient of Days. This is a description of God the Father. But yet we also know that the Father and the Son bear many, many likenesses, and they're both very similar, being of the same essence, but being separate and distinct one from the other as well. So there's something that we need to see here. If the father's hair was white as snow and as wool, so is the son's. John wanted everyone to know Jesus is the fulfillment of the one that Isaiah and Daniel spoke of. By John making this statement, he was letting us know Jesus is the one who wants us to come and reason together with him from the book of Isaiah. John also wants us to connect the two who had hair that was white as wool as from the book of Daniel. There's so many things that is listed in the book of Revelation, it's almost impossible to catch every one of these allusions in places where he points to scriptures that are from the Old Testament. John goes on in his description, and he said, His eyes were like fire, and his feet were like fine brass, and his voice was like many waters. Now, this reference to the voice sounding like many waters, this ties back in with Ezekiel. Like I mentioned earlier, John pulls from Ezekiel very often. This is Ezekiel 43 and 2. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. So we realize John is pointing something out right here. His voice sounds like the rushing, pouring tides of waters. He said, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Now that ties together with Hebrews 4 and 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We know this to be speaking of the Bible, but we also need to keep in mind it's the word of God. So Jesus has something coming out of his mouth, and it's like a two-edged sword. What would Jesus speak? Well, being that he is the living word, he would speak the written word. And so the word that's coming out of his mouth is the two-edged sword. That two-edged sword that he has is the word of God. His countenance, it says, was as bright as the sun when it shines at its brightest. 
when it mentions his countenance shining as the sun in its strength, and this correlates with what Paul witnessed in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, when Jesus appeared to him. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. I want you to notice how all of these illusions are tied together with actual things that happen, tying fact together with fact, showing that the Bible can be trusted and it verifies everything. As a matter of fact, everything John has written can be verified by numerous scripture references. He's making sure that everyone who reads his record knows who he is describing. Even more than this, though, the Spirit is to bear witness of Christ, and he has given John this revelation. So the Spirit is very careful to make these connections for us. The Lord wants us to see Christ here in the book of Revelation. He does not want our minds blinded. He doesn't want our eyes to be focused on the wrong thing. This is why I said from the beginning, I am not going to make this study all about the end times because so many people get so focused on the end times and what trouble and turmoil and all the things that go along with the end of time, they seem to lose focus of Jesus Christ. If we could keep our focus on Jesus Christ, the end times are not going to bother us near as bad, nor will we be as confused when it comes to looking at the scriptures. For when we see Christ as the fulfillment, we'll be able to understand them much better. John saw this one who is describing, and then the Bible says he fell down as one who was dead. The Lord reached over and touched him, told him not to fear, because he is the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. He does this in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Jesus says he's the one that liveth, which he is. He's the one that was dead, which was and he is alive forevermore. He is that one which is to come. As always, Jesus covers the past, the present, and the future. I'm sure that there are some in the audience who noticed that I skipped a little phrase here in verse 16. I did that on purpose because I feel that it's linked with another phrase that we're going to find in just a few verses later. I think it's connected with verse 18, but yet it's connected much tighter with verse 20. In verse 16, Jesus declares that he's holding seven stars in his right hand. In verse 18, Jesus then tells John that he has the keys of hell and of death. Well, where would he be holding them if he's got them? Of course, it's in his hand. Let me read you both of these verses. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. Verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Just what is the Lord telling John right here? Now, it would be easy to get sidetracked and get to looking into different things and try to figure out what all of this means. We're going to look at this deeper when we get to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. We're going to tie some of these thoughts together. But I want to make a couple of comments before we get there. We shouldn't worry about anything because the idea Jesus is trying to give us is that he has everything in his hands. When we begin to worry, things are getting out of control. He's letting us know, I've got it in my hand. It's okay. We shouldn't worry about these things because if it's in his hand, that means he's got control of it. We need to remember that John just fell down as though he were dead in verse 18. I want you to notice what Jesus was telling him here. I believe in a sense he was telling John, you might think you're going to die, 
but I have the power over death and over hell. Could I tell you that whoever possesses the keys of something, he's the owner of it? (laughs) If Jesus has the keys to death and to hell, that means that he's got all power over both of them. He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of hell. He has conquered both of them. And so we shouldn't fear them because if we have Christ in us, we will also conquer death and hell. As I said, Lord willing, we'll be studying this in depth much later in Revelation 3 and 7. But I'm going to go ahead and read you Revelation 3 and 7 so you have it in your mind. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. We shouldn't fear death because Jesus was the one who was dead, but now he's alive. If he can conquer his own death, He can conquer death for anyone and for everyone. He is the only one who has ever truly defeated death. His was not the only resurrection in history, for several people were raised back to life and had resurrections in the Old Testament and a few in the New. But the distinguishing factor is that none of these people that died and resurrected raised themselves from the dead. Neither did they continue living for a long time afterwards or forever. They eventually died again. They died somewhere else down the line. Jesus is the only one who has ever raised himself back up. Now, before you say, no, wait a minute. I know that in the book of Acts, it says the spirit raised him up. And then it says somewhere else that God raised him. I understand that. The whole Godhead was at work here. But in the book of John, Jesus told us, he said, I have power to lay my life down and take it up again. He said, I've got the power. If I lay it down, I can take it back up. Jesus is the only one who has lived ever since his resurrection, and he will continue living because he will live forevermore. We see once again in verse 19 that Jesus gives John the charge to write this in a book. Once again, he says, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. In other words, write the things that you have seen, write the things that you are seeing and the things you're about to see. There's definite reasons why Jesus wanted John to share this revelation. Number one, I believe it's so many people will be blessed according to verse three in chapter one here. It says, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time it's at hand. I understand that when people begin to look at this book, it's easy to get sidetracked in all of the commotion that's going on, all of the things that appear to be bad and terrible But could I tell you, this book was written to be a blessing. This is a revelation that should be revealing Jesus Christ to us and showing us the things which will come hereafter. Once again, I'm sure some might be disappointed that I haven't taken on that phrase from verse 16. So I'm going to go ahead and touch on that a little bit right now. We read that Jesus is holding the seven stars in his right hand. Thankfully, in verse 20, Jesus gives us some understanding of this mystery that's found in verse 16. It says right here, the mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So this tells us a tidbit of information we didn't have before. We knew that there were seven churches. We now know that they have seven angels, one for each church that have been given to them. Then Jesus goes on and says, and the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest are the seven churches. So he reiterates that point, and we know that the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches, and the stars that he's got in his right hand are the angels of those churches. 
There's a great debate among scholars concerning what John wrote here and what Jesus said here. There are some who say that this is speaking of actual angels who Jesus has dispatched to individual churches, that every church has their own individual angel who watches out for them and watches over them. The other belief is that these angels, or messengers as they're also known as, are only a reference to the pastors of those churches, or better yet, the elders who were presiding over these churches. I personally lean towards the angels as being the pastors, and I want to give you some of my reasoning before we close out today. If you were going to write a letter to someone and tell them to get some things within the church fixed, who would you need to contact? Most everyone would agree that we would contact the pastor or the bishop of the church. I'm pretty sure that angels don't receive mail, if I'm not mistaken, but I do know that they've been known to deliver it. Okay, so the point of the seven golden candlesticks here being the seven churches should convict our hearts. What good is a candlestick that is not lit? What good are our churches if they have no light coming from them? If we are part of the church, we are to be a light to this dark world in which we live. Woe to the candlestick that doesn't shine. How well are we living up to our calling? So think about this. If angels do refer to pastors here, think about what this is telling us. Jesus is walking among the churches, and he's holding the pastors in his hand. In this setting, I believe it's very probable that pastors are intended because of the context. I will concede the fact that I do believe that spirit beings such as angels and demons rule over cities and geographical areas. I believe there is a such thing as territorial spirits, and we may do an episode on that sometime later. I do believe that there are spirits that have strongholds within certain areas of cities and towns, but I don't believe that's what's being spoken of here. This is part of another topic altogether, I know, but I'm allowing that I can see a possibility for the other interpretation that it's a true, actual angel that's over each church. But despite saying all of that, I don't believe actual angels are in view in this passage myself. Before we go into chapter 2, I want to give you a summary of some of the themes and the doctrines that we have seen here only in Revelation 1. I understand you don't hardly hear people preach doctrine out of the book of Revelation. Some people say it's impossible because there is none. Well, I want to prove that wrong because we have seen many things that are doctrinal here in this book already. We've seen proof of the Godhead. We've got Jesus on the earth talking with John, and there's a message that God gave to Jesus to give to John. And then we have reference to the Spirit of God being present. So we have a picture of the Godhead. We have been pointed to the deity of Christ. In verse 6, it it speaks about God and his Father. Well, the Father doesn't have a Father, but the Son does. So we know this is calling Jesus Christ God, and God's Father is referenced. Jesus as God the Son, speaking of God the Father. We have also seen a reference to angelomorphic Christology, which means the angel of the Lord passages shows that Christ took on human flesh. We saw the necessity of God's will. We have also seen several Old Testament passages reach their fulfillment right here in the book of Revelation. We have witnessed God's care for the churches and for their angels, whoever you feel they are. We're reminded that Jesus washed us from our sins by his blood, which is salvation. This is better known by scholars as the doctrine of soteriology, but regardless, we see the point of salvation right here in these verses. Verse 5 tells us that unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood— This is the doctrine of salvation. This is soteriology. We have seen that the word of God can be spoken by any member of the Trinity without changing its meaning nor changing its message. 
We have seen the fact of the resurrection addressed already in this book. All of these things, and we've only covered three episodes, but we've only covered one chapter. There's a lot in the book of Revelation, and we'll be getting into much more as we enter chapter two in our next study as we look at the church at Ephesus. All right, Brother Donnie, you have some good teaching. Got a question in here for you today. You ready for it? I think so, depending on what it is. What do we have? All right, here's the question. Is saving faith and our assurance of faith the same faith? <laughs> okay, that's that's a good question. And I think it's one that needs to be asked and talked about much more often. There's a couple of groups out today that are blurring the lines on faith and there's a lot being said about faith. As a matter of fact, you have the Word of Faith movement who teaches us to have faith in faith and not to have faith in God. So I can see where there would be a lot of confusion coming from those groups. I know other groups that believe that faith is faith regardless. If you got faith, it'll save you. If you got faith, you got assurance in it. It's the same faith. No big deal. I personally believe that they are two separate and distinct things. I believe that to have saving faith, a person must believe in Jesus Christ. To have assurance of faith, you must continue believing in Jesus Christ. There's a small difference, but there is a difference. Okay, One is the faith that saves. The other is a faith that trusts and that keeps you. Okay, let me go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, and I want to share scripture with you. Little John says, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. He said, I've wrote these things so you can understand and believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, that is saving faith. Now, he goes on farther, and he gets to talking about that you may know you have eternal life. Okay, so because of the faith you place in Jesus Christ for saving faith, now that assurance of faith, because now we know that we have eternal life before we believed in him, but now we know we have eternal life. There's a difference and a distinction between the two terms. We believe on Jesus to be saved. We trust in him and know that we have eternal life, which is our assurance of faith. We can't have assurance of faith until we have saving faith by believing in Jesus. You can't have an assurance of your faith because you've never expressed faith until you believe on Jesus. So you must have saving faith first before you can ever reach the assurance of faith. And sadly, I've seen this so many times throughout my Christian experience. I've met many people who believe that Jesus was Savior, and they believe that he was Lord, and they believe that he died for the forgiveness of sins and that he suffered on the cross for them but yet they couldn't believe that they could be saved. Some were hardened sinners, but most of them, and this is what's surprising, most of them were young people that have grown up their whole lives in church. Seemed like they were so good, but they just couldn't believe that God would save them, that God would forgive them of the wrongs they had done. These were good kids, but yet they could not believe. So they had no assurance of faith because they never truly had saving faith. They couldn't trust in Jesus for their salvation. If you can't trust in him for your salvation, you won't be able to trust in him in assurance of faith. Assurance of faith is what brings sanctification and the future glorification of the saints. You say, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought it was because of our believing faith. No, it, it, it's all working together. If you don't get saved, you can never be sanctified and you can never be glorified. But once you are saved, 
the work of sanctification begins in your life, and it's proof that your salvation experience here on earth has begun, and the glorification is the finished product in heaven, and glorification is the perfecting of your sanctification that started because you have assurance of faith because you have now believed on Jesus Christ. I hope you can follow all of those trails of thought. All right. That's a good answer on faith. I'm thankful to have faith. Remember, friends, if you have a Bible question you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at DKMinistries1977 at yahoo.com. That's DKMinistries1977 at yahoo.com. We encourage you to send questions in to us, and you'll certainly get a biblical answer back. Certainly hope you've enjoyed our podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. We invite you to come back Friday and hear our special edition number 49, The Discontented Christian. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name, I'm going where he bid me go. I'm dressing and talking like you want me to, he's a keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. Looking for a home in glory where no sorrow will ever be known.